Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. I'm recording this podcast at the very end of a week where my children are with my ex and I've been alone and I've been working a lot. I've been really busy. I actually think I might even go shop for new clothes today, which I haven't done in years, which is making me a little bit nervous. Uh, (laughs) At the same time, I'm kind of like, oh my word, I might get a new shirt today. That's kind of exciting. While my children have been gone, my mom has come down and helped me. I have amazing parents. They are supportive emotionally, they're supportive financially, and I really need to put a shout out to them, especially my mom, who is my biggest fan, and there is no way I could do this without her support emotionally and physically. She tends my kids. She brings dinner. My mom is a carpenter and she can do electrical work. She fixes my toilets. She came down and helped me assemble a desk and help put my new office together. And I got exhausted, okay? My mom is 65 and last night she came over and she's like climbing up on stools to drill bookcases into the wall so they don't fall over on my kids and kill them. And I'm getting exhausted and I say, mom, I'm tired, you know, and she powers through. My mom can do anything. I am so grateful for her and I admire her so much. And where my ex-husband used to be my partner in projects, now I still have a partner and it's my mom. And so I can still work on my projects and do these things I love. And I still have help. She is an angel and I'm so grateful for her. My life is infinitely better because of her. And I'm grateful for my dad and their financial assistance. Um, I'm really, really blessed to have amazing parents. I just want to talk about some of the things that I loved about my ex that I've been thinking about lately. I love projects. I love improving things. I have a really nice home in a nice area in a suburb north of Salt Lake City. It's very safe here. It's very convenient. My ex and I bought the home together when we were married. I love that he is educated. So he's a mechanical engineer and he's also a patent attorney. He's really, really smart with numbers and with problem solving like mechanical situations. I really appreciated that about him. He built a chicken coop that could withstand the apocalypse. I remember watching him work in the yard and he was super strong. Like he could pick up a railroad tie and just drag it around. And I was always really attracted to him when he was out working in the yard and he had dirt all over his face. We bought a home together actually before we got married, which I don't recommend that anyone do. But Um, There were tons of rocks, and so we gathered all the rocks up, and we would put them in buckets, and he would put them in the bottom of the garbage can, because the garbage can could only handle like one-third of it being full of rocks, otherwise it would break the garbage can. So the truck would come and pick it up and dump it, and then he would dump a bunch more rocks in and take the garbage can to the other side of the street. Now, that was my idea, but he did it willingly. When he was not being abusive, he was so willing to help me. He worked from home the last three years of our marriage. And I would come home from the grocery store and I'd call him. And he would come up and help me bring the groceries in. 
he loved church, which is difficult for me now because he still attends church in our church. We attend the temple. He's attending the temple. He hasn't repented. There's some kind of disconnect there. I don't know if he's lying to himself. I don't know what it is, but I like that he does love the church. I just can't figure out why he doesn't understand the commandments or obey them or think they apply to him. I don't know, but he has the appearance, I guess, of really, truly loving the church, which, which I really appreciated about him. He liked to cook, which I appreciated about him. He wasn't a good cook, but he did it and he liked it. And that was cool. He was willing to do anything that I wanted to do. So whatever movie I wanted to watch, wherever I wanted to go, he was willing to go with me. He never really planned anything, which now I'm like, huh, I guess he just wasn't interested. Like I did a lot of brain work planning things, but he was always willing to go. He didn't play video games. He didn't watch sports. And I really appreciated that about him. When he was here, he really, really genuinely seemed to care about his family, which is why it was so shocking that after his arrest, he just gave up. And also for the last three months when things got really bad, there was no sign of him wanting to protect his family or keep his family together. He has this like kind of childlike naivety to him. Like he didn't know who the Rockettes were. He didn't know a lot of like cultural references. And I found it kind of endearing. And I really admired his physical strength and stamina. He was an extremely hard worker with yard projects and other projects. And he had a lot of patience unless he was abusive. And then he would get mad and scream and yell and swear. Anyway, I'm missing the really good things about him. And I'm also missing the times where we work together to accomplish things. We really got along about all major decisions, church things, where to move, what to do. Every major decision was very easy for us. And we never fought about that. Because he was abusive, we were constantly having trouble with the little things. That's what made life very difficult on a day-to-day basis. We moved six times in five years. We started out in Spokane, Washington, and he was laid off. And then we moved in with my parents. Then we moved to Washington, D.C., where he was a patent examiner, and we lived there for two years. So during this time, his abuse I attributed to the stress of his job in 2008. And also, we had to sell our house, and it was just very stressful. So I attributed his abuse to stress and thought, okay, well, once we can sell our house and get him a new job, then he'll be better. And then we moved to Washington, D.C., and he was in the patent office. And I thought, okay, well, this is just a temporary situation. We're living in a small apartment in inner city Alexandria. Once he gets his career established and we can move into a home, things will be better. Then we moved back to Utah, moved in with my parents. That was also difficult. And I thought, okay, once we get our own house, things will be better. 
We bought a home that I did not like. The floor plan was awkward. We couldn't fit a dining room table in the kitchen, for example. And I thought, well, if we move to a more permanent home where we could live forever and raise our family there, things will be better. So then we bought this home, the home that I'm in now, which is my dream home. I absolutely adore it. I never, ever want to leave. We immediately started remodeling and I thought, okay, once the home is remodeled and we're settled, then he'll be better, right? We'll have less stress and he won't act this way. But he started getting worse. About a year after we moved into our dream home, he wanted to move again. And he kept talking about getting a new job and changing. And I was like, no, this is our life now. This is what it means to have a life together. He just felt trapped and stuck and was angry. And I thought, okay, well, all these remodeling projects and all these projects are pushing him over the edge. So I stopped. I said, okay, no more remodeling projects for a little while. Then he actually got worse. It was that time when we had put a kibosh on all of the projects that he actually escalated. I mean, I was still thinking about them. I was still preparing for them. So it wasn't like they had stopped completely in terms of my discussion of them. But the actual physical work was not happening. In fact, my mom is a kitchen designer. She had just done the plans to remodel the kitchen and take down a wall when his arrest happened. It's a good thing we didn't start that project. That summer when things escalated, I remember thinking things will be better when the kids are in school. And then the kids got in school and it didn't get any better. I'm not sure what I would have thought because there wasn't anything else. Like we were in our dream home. I had said, we're not going to start this project till you are not acting like this anymore. So there wasn't anything else I could blame I couldn't blame his job. I couldn't blame our living situation. I couldn't blame so-called stress because we had the perfect life at that time. There's always an excuse for abuse. There's always a reason. He's stressed. He feels shame. There's always going to be a quote-unquote reason. But sisters, non-abusive men, they get stressed and they don't scream and swear in your face. They get stressed and they don't use porn. They feel shame and they kneel down and pray and turn to the scriptures and repent. Difficult situations do not cause abuse. Negative feelings do not cause porn use. Choices do. The type of man who is safe, they'll feel sadness. They'll feel shame. They'll feel stress and they will choose kindness. They will choose to obey the commandments. They'll choose to protect their family. And that's what you deserve and that's what I deserve. I want to share with you scriptures I read this morning. I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're Christian and we study from the Bible and from the Book of Mormon. And this passage is from the Book of Mormon. It's from Alma 5. And this is a prophet calling people to repentance and letting them know what will happen. This is Alma 555. Yea, and will you persist in turning your backs upon the poor and the needy and in withholding your substance from them? And finally, all ye that will persist in your wickedness, I say unto you that these are they who shall be hewn down and cast into the fire, except they speedily repent. And now I say unto you, all you that are desirous to follow the voice of the good shepherd, Come ye out from the wicked, and be ye separate. Here is Christ 
telling us to set boundaries, separate from the wickedness. I'm going to read that again. Come ye out from the wicked and be ye separate and touch not their unclean things and behold, their names shall be blotted out that the names of the wicked shall not be numbered among the names of the righteous, that the word of God may be fulfilled, which saith the names of the wicked shall not be mingled with the names of my people for the names of the righteous shall be written in the book of life. And unto them will I grant an inheritance at my right hand. And now my brethren, what have ye to say against this? I say unto you, if ye speak against it, it matters not, for the word of God must be fulfilled. For what shepherd is there among you, having many sheep, doth not watch over them, that the wolves enter not and devour his flock? And behold, if a wolf enter his flock, doth he not drive him out? Yea, and at the last, if he can, he will destroy him? And now I say unto you that the good shepherd doth call after you, if you will hearken unto his voice, he will bring you into his fold, and ye are his sheep. And here's a commandment straight from Jesus Christ. And he commandeth you that ye suffer no ravenous wolf to enter among you, that ye may not be destroyed. I'm going to read that one more time. And he commandeth you that ye suffer no ravenous wolf to enter among you, that ye may not be destroyed. Sisters, we love our husbands. I absolutely loved and adored my husband. For seven years, I sacrificed everything to try and help him and to try and save my family. But here God is commanding me and commanding you, suffer no ravenous wolf to enter among you that you may not be destroyed. I know a lot of you are wondering what God wants for you. God wants you to be safe. He wants you to have a peaceful home. You cannot have a peaceful home with a ravenous wolf within the walls. This is a time for all of us to stand for truth and righteousness in a way that we never have before. And the reason why it's so scary is because there's men in our church who look at us like we're crazy. There's people who say that our boundaries aren't righteous or that we're not being loving or kind or forgiving. But none of that is true. The most compassionate thing you can do for your husband is to set a boundary and God is commanding you to do so. I don't know what that boundary is going to look like. And also, I don't really know how Heavenly Father will help you. Because there were so many times where I felt so alone and so scared. And that was with like amazing supportive parents who are incredible. And so many of you don't have supportive parents like I have or supportive friends. And so the isolation is so intense. But I do know that you stepping toward faith and obeying the commandment, suffer no ravenous wolf to enter among you. If you start making steps toward obeying this commandment, you will be blessed. I have no idea how. And I'm pretty sure that before you're blessed, things are going to get a lot worse. But I have to think that God keeps his promises. And I also look at people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Mother Teresa and George Washington and our founding fathers and the suffragettes and what they sacrificed. 
They sacrificed their lives for truth. And I got to stay in my beautiful home. And I get to dig in my garden. But many of you, what I'm asking you to do is going to be hard. You're going to have to leave your home, maybe. Maybe you're going to have to be on food stamps. Some of you are facing homelessness. I just pray that you will let God lead you. That as we create an army of healthy women that will suffer no ravenous wolf to come among us, that we can change the world. Until next week, stay safe out there.